love to share with you the word of the Lord this morning for just a few minutes. And for those of you that have been with us for a while, you know that I have been on a series that I started at the beginning of the year about when the church prays. And the first part of that series, the first several weeks, we were talking about how we approach God, how the, the, with desperate prayers and passionate prayers and standing in the gap. And then last week, we began to pivot a little bit to understand that prayer is not just a monologue, but it's a dialogue. And that in that, there is things that the God wants to say to us. And so how do we listen? What are the voices that God speaks to us in? And I certainly would like to spend a moment and just acknowledge the work of Mark Batterson and, and much of the research that's gone into the, the languages that God uses to speak to us study. But would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Father, as we approach this time in your word, we recognize that, that you have already prepared a meal in the word that you desire us to eat. And every time we sit down to eat, we ask that you would bless us and nourish us. So God, would you nourish us with the fresh bread of your word? And that in that, the energy that we receive spiritually, that you would enable us to walk in obedience to you and bring pleasure to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many of you may recognize the name Diane Ackerman, but she's an author. And she wrote a book called The Natural History of the Senses. And in her book, she shared an incident in which uh, proves to us that we can all speak the same language and it still be difficult to understand each other. Diane hails from Illinois, and she was on a trip to Arkansas. Have any of you ever been to Arkansas? few of you have. Anybody you know anybody from Arkansas? They have an accent. It's a little different than us. And so when she got to Arkansas, she asked her host if there was a spa in town. And she said, I knew that I was close to the hot springs in Arkansas and thought, what a great way for me to spend an afternoon, just go and enjoy those. And so she was hoping that there was a spa. And when she mentioned that, she said, the look on my host's face instantly indicated to me that she lost something in translation. In fact, her host looked at her and with a thick Arkansas accent, she said, you mean like Russian spas? Secret agent spots? <laughs> and it dawned on me that we don't always hear the same thing that's being said because we hear through the filter of our own histories, our own accents, we hear through our own life experiences, we hear through our personalities, our nationalities, our ethnicities, and we hear through our own theologies. In fact, when my parents were in Germany, missionaries in Germany, back in 2002, all of us as kids and our children were invited to come and spend a Christmas with them. And so there were 17 of us that went to Germany this particular Christmas, and we enjoyed the country. I did get to drive on the Autobahn. I was going over 100 miles an hour on the smoothest road I've ever been on, and I got past like I was in a parking lot. Uh, but while we were there, we had an evening where we were going to go to a restaurant, and when we got to the parking lot, the restaurant seemed rather full, and as we entered in, what I discovered was that Germans are a little quieter than Americans. In fact, even though it was full, I couldn't hear a single conversation that was going on around us. Now, you get 17 Americans and a dement family American group together, and we were getting these looks, these unapproving looks from those that were in there about how loud we were, and I discovered that there's an American ear and there's a German ear. 
I would also suggest to you this morning that there's a Catholic ear and a Protestant ear, a Republican ear and a Democratic ear, a male ear and a female ear, that just because we speak the same language doesn't mean that we hear one another. We speak dialects that are as different as spas and spies. We don't always hear what we have to say. And while this is true linguistically, I also want you to know today that it is true spiritually. We don't all speak the same language, nor do we all hear the same way. And thankfully, I serve a God today that is big enough that he has the ability to speak individually to each and every one of us in ways that we and our spirit can understand. Sometimes, and I mentioned this last week, that I'm going to be going through the different ways in which the Spirit can speak to us. Sometimes He speaks softly to us through desires and promptings and pain. And sometimes He speaks in big ways through doors and dreams and people. But God has the ability, while we are in prayer, to speak to us in such a way that we can understand what He is saying. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, there's this passage of Scripture that says, In times past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. One of the things I love about this Scripture is if there was ever an understatement that's found in the Bible, it probably is this verse. Because God had an amazing ability to speak to people in different ways that could arrest them where they are and get His message across. In fact, we know for a fact that he spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to Pharaoh through ten signs and wonders. He spoke to Hezekiah through illness. He spoke to the Babylonian astrologers through stars. He spoke to Belshazzar via a disembodied hand that was inscribing on the wall many, many tackle person on the palace wall that he was at. And one of my favorites, and I just finished reading this in my devotions last week, was when he spoke to Balaam through a donkey. I know a number of you have dogs. If your dog ever woke you up in the morning and said, Thus saith the Lord, you either have an amazing dog or you had really bad pizza. Let me be absolutely clear about one thing. Highlighting the various ways in which God speaks to us, the Hebrew writer then zeroed in on his greatest revelation to each of us, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. He is the Son of Man, and He's the Son of God. He is the Creator of all things. He's the heir of all things. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life and the name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we ask, does God still speak to us in various ways? And I believe that He does. But now... We have the distinct advantage of having the Scripture, our Bibles, as the final sounding board for what God wants to say to us. God will never speak to you and say anything that is contrary to what He has already revealed to us in His Scripture. But God does speak in various ways. And I want to explore seven of those. I really thought that I was going to be done with this series next week. And, and rather than trying to rush through it, I'm going to take some time with these. Because I really believe that in conversations that I've had with many of you, that God is using various language to begin to speak to you. 
And so here are the languages, and as we get into them, we also need that we need time and repetition to learn them and hear them and understand them. One of the dangers that we live in today in the church world, and when I'm talking about that, I'm not speaking specifically about our church, but Christianity as a whole worldwide is that today it is easier than ever for us to rely on secondhand spirituality. Listening to somebody else that has heard from God and hoping that they will give us a message that can guide and direct our life. I want you to know today, already twice through the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, God is speaking to each of us as individuals. He doesn't always need somebody else to tell you what God wants to say to you. It may very well be that if you will just listen and allow the voices of God to speak to your heart, that you can hear what he has to say for you himself. The first language that God speaks to us, and I bring this one first because it is the most important one, and that is the language of Scripture. On April the 14th in 1755, General Edward Braddock sailed up the Potomac River to Georgetown, where he picked up a 23-year-old Virginia planter by the name of George Washington. Braddock anchored his ship in what is now Washington, D.C., at a place that would be just past the Constitution. Avenue, where it turns in to the Theodore Roosevelt Bridge. And at that location today is a nondescript well. And it, next to it is a small historic plaque that says that below you is a rock. In fact, there's a manhole cover that covers it. And if you were to take that off, there's a ladder inside that goes down 16 feet below the surface to what is now a small rock. Braddock's Rock, as it is known, is the oldest landmark in the nation's capital. The true significance of that stone was that it was the starting point from all of the earliest surveys that took place across the whole city. In fact, the old maps of Washington, D.C. call Braddock's Rock, 16 feet below the surface, the key of keys to every map there is in Washington, D.C. That rock established the coordination system for the whole city to be planned, and everything was measured from that initial point. Whether we know it or not, every one of us have a key of keys. The one thing that anchors us in that everything else in our life is measured from. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, the key of keys that measures everything in our life is the Bible. It is the Word of God. And what makes the Bible unique Above every other book that you may read is it does two things that no other book can do. First, in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, it says this. The Word of God is living and it is active. Living and active. In other words, you don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads you. The Spirit who inspired the ancient writers as they wrote, is the same spirit that inspired modern-day readers as we read it today when the Lord begins to speak to us. So the Holy Spirit is on both sides of this equation. He's the one that inspired the authors, and now he inspires the readers. Paul describes Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 as all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, last week we talked about breath, remember? that you take the vowels out of Yahweh and it sounds as if a breath, that the, the first word we learn at the moment we are born is speaking the name of God. The last word we speak before we go is speaking the name of God. Every breath declares His name. 
And it is God-breathed, meaning that when we read the Scripture, we are inhaling what the Spirit of God needs to give to us. And we are exhaling His truth to those around us. Secondly, we will never get to the bottom of the Bible. According to the rabbinic traditions, every word of Scripture has 70 faces and 600,000 meanings. In other words, when you read the Bible, you can be sitting right next to somebody reading the same verse, and it's like a kaleidoscope as God takes that and applies that in different ways because He knows exactly what you're going through and exactly what you need as He allows you to have the truth of His Word. It covers nearly every subject under the sun, from law and history and prophecy and cosmology and theology. And yet, despite that, it touches on hundreds of topics and never contradicts itself. I'm holding this morning the most prized possession that I have from my mother. When my mom and dad retired from missionary work, the day that she came home, she began to feel a pain in her stomach, and it was discovered the next day that she was in the last stages of pancreatic cancer, and she'd had no idea. My father gave me this Bible, and I use it to study from all week long, partly because it's got her perfume on it. I can smell my mother. This Bible connects me to my mom in ways that words can't. One of the things I love about her Bible is that she wrote in it. She highlighted things. She put little notes in there, and I come across them all the time, and I stop as I'm looking at them, and I read them, and there's this connection because I knew that how God was speaking to her affected the way I grew up. It's a powerful reminder to me that a Bible that is falling apart, as Spurgeon said, usually belongs to somebody who is not. I had the privilege of speaking at the funeral of my 98-year-old grandfather, my mom's dad. And I took his Bible, and he had one of those bigger Bibles that had a cover around it where he stuck a year's worth of church bulletins in them. Some of you are nodding because you understand that. And, and I was digging those things out, and as I was looking at the notes that he had written from his pastor and the different little anecdotes that he had written in there, I preached a message of you can learn a lot by from a, a man by what's in his Bible. You see, we have this powerful love letter from God that he desires to speak into our life and that when we read it, the first thing that he does as he's speaking to us is he quickens his word. He quickens it to us. And that is an interesting word because quicken means it's the difference from us just receiving information and transformation. You see, those who read the Bible that are not in a relationship with God yet, many times they will look at you and say, I don't know how you get anything out of this because it seems boring to me. But the moment that they receive Christ, transformation takes place within them, and the Spirit who lives within them begins to quicken that Word, and suddenly what they never understood in the past comes alive to them in brand new ways because God speaks to them. It's fascinating that this word quicken is the same word that's used to describe physical resurrection in much the same way. Whenever we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit defibrillates the spirit of His life in our Word that we are reading. And so we experience a little bit of resurrection every time we read the Word. How do I know that? Because He brings your dreams back to life. 
He brings your faith back to life. He gives you hope again. You feel and sense His love. He delivers on promises that we've given up on. His Word quickens us and brings us back into balance in life. And the surest way to get into the presence of God and to hear Him speak to you is to get into the Word of God and read it. It changes the way you think. It will change the way you feel. It will change the way you live and it will change the way you love. John 15, 7 in the New King James Version says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, we have twisted that from time to time to make sure that we wanted to get what we wanted, but I want you to know that when he abides in you, he adjusts your desires so that it fits his heart and his mind. If his word truly abides in you, you won't want anything that are outside the boundaries of God's will and his words. God's word will sanctify your desires until the will of God is all that you want. And interesting enough, this word abide, which in the King James Version in the 15th chapter of John, it is repeated nine times, has multiple meanings that every one of them can apply to us. One of those means, it means to be moved, or in other words, to abide in Christ means that you are, your spirits are stirred. Now, I heard John this morning as he was talking about, while we were here in worship, I felt the stirring of the Holy Spirit. He said, I, I can feel that. How many of you feel that when we're worshiping the Lord? We can just tell the presence of God is at work doing something in our life. And so when we abide in him, there's a stirring. There's a recognition that he's here and he's doing something in us. But abiding also can mean to stand still, such as some of you need to plant yourselves on the promises of God and not let anybody talk you out of it. And just say, here is where I'm standing and here is where I will not be moved from. It also means to stay overnight. I don't know when the last time was that you pulled an all-nighter in prayer and worship and the Word, but that is one of the meanings of abide. And then it also means to dwell. It means God wants you to abide in Him and He abide in you. He takes up residence within your life that will never end for eternity. And so hearing the voice of God starts with quickening. And if you will... That still small voice that he begins to speak to you, abiding in him is the key for it. Before I move on to the next language, I must bring something up as it speaks with regard to the word. I wish that hearing the voice of God was as easy as just reading, but it is not. It requires meditation. It requires prayer. It requires contemplating. And it is only when we show the Holy Spirit of seriousness of our desire with Him and we slow down that the Holy Spirit then begins to quicken us. Reading is one piece to the puzzle. J.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficulty and left untried. You see, you can't just read the Word. You have to meditate on it. You have to pray about it. You have to think about it. And then you have to do it. Until you obey what God is telling you in the Word, you simply have been educated above your level of obedience. Peter Marshall said this, I wonder what would happen if we all agreed to read one of the Gospels until we got to a place where it told us to do something. And then we all just stopped, closed our Bible, and we went out and did it. And only after we had been obedient in that would we go back and begin to read again further. He said, I'll tell you what would happen. God's kingdom would fall on this earth, 
and His will would be done. This is what happens when hearers become doers. And that is a part of hearing the voice of God. The second language and the last one that I want to address this morning is the language of desires. Mark Batterson tells a story of a ballerina named Jillian Lynn that in 2014 she was named Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Now, I admit when I read that I had no idea what that was, so I had to go and look it up. It is one of the highest honors that is bestowed upon a civilian for non-military contributions to the United Kingdom. Jillian had a career in the Royal Ballet that saw her dance in a number of different things that we would all recognize, like the Sleeping Beauty and Cats and the Phantom of the Opera and many, many others. But when she was a schoolgirl in the 1930s, teachers were afraid that she had a learning disability because she could not sit still. Her fidgetiness today would probably be diagnosed as ADHD. But when she was eight years old, her teacher told her mother, you need to take her to a doctor to figure out what is going on here. And so her mother took her to a specialist and 20 minutes into that visit, the specialist got up and told her mother, would you please join me outside for just a moment? And as she walked out of the room, she flipped on the radio to some music that was playing. And the specialist and her mother went outside, closed the door, and looked through the window. Because as soon as the music started playing, Jillian immediately got up and began to move to the music in beautiful rhythm. And the doctor said to Miss Lynn, your daughter isn't sick your daughter is a dancer. Take her to dance school. And that is what Jillian's mother did. And Jillian later recalled, I can't tell you how wonderful dance school was for me because it was filled with people who couldn't sit still. <laughs> people who had to move to think. And I thought about that because on, on our Sunday evening prayer times when we have it, there are those of you that turn around and you plant your face into the chair and you are getting alone with God and, and it's just there. And then there are those of us like me that can't sit still. I have to move to think. And so I, I'm walking around and I'm praying and even the staff laughs because as I'm writing messages trying to get the words right, my hands are always moving and they're looking through the door. And you know, some of us just are fidgeters, but this is a language that God uses to speak to each of us. And in Psalm 37, 4, it says, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. We Christians have often given ourselves a bad reputation because we tend to think of desires in a negative light. If we desire something, then it probably is not of God, and God probably doesn't want us to have it if we think that we want it, or if we get too near it, God's going to be upset with all of that. And C.S. Lewis had the opposite opinion. He said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Some desires are sinful, no doubt, and those sinful desires must be crucified. Lewis goes on to say, but God also wants to resurrect your desires, to sanctify them, to intensify them, and to leverage them for His purpose because it's a language God speaks. I find the language of desires is a language that has been one that God has spoken to me most often throughout my life. He's changed my desires. I remember as a 12-year-old visiting New York City for the first time, and I grew up in a town of 5,000 people in central Nebraska, and there were more people lived in one building in New York City than came from my whole town. And as I'm on the circle line going around, I heard words I had never heard. I'm waving at everybody and realized they were only giving me partial waves back. 
I'm, I'm watching a city people and a mentality, and it didn't take me very long as a 12-year-old to tell my dad and to tell God, I will never, ever live in New York. <laughs> How many of you know God changes desires? When I was in college, I was studying to be a business owner, wanted to own a sporting goods store. Those of you that have attended here a while know this story. And when I was in my junior year of college, I was representing my college at a camp, a youth camp in Oregon. A boy by the name of Mike got dropped off at camp because his parents were getting a divorce that week and they didn't want him around. He was angry and hurt. And it was on the last night of camp as I'm kneeling next to him that Mike submitted his life to Christ and God began to do a healing in him. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me and said, how many guns and rods and reels and balls and bats and gloves would you have to sell to have the fulfillment of this moment right here? And God began to change my desires. I remember that I am married to Cindy today because I desired to have a relationship with that beautiful woman. I had to pursue her. But it was from my desires of getting to know her that God began to work. God used changing my desires to move me along in responsibilities in ministry. Even though I can tell you this, and some of you may be dealing with this, there will be times in your life when God begins to give you desires that don't make any sense to anybody else. Because sometimes his desires don't make natural sense or financial sense because you're leaving places of greater financial stability than what God may be leading you to. But let me tell you something. When God gives you those desires, he already knows the provisions that are in place if you'll just be obedient. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor of this church today because God gave me a desire to want to be here. And I will admit to you, not every desire... Even really good ones are God's will, but God will begin to filter those things for you. But church, God speaks to us through desires. Maybe you understand this language as well. Seven times in the book of Genesis, God expresses delight. The first emotion that is described in Scripture is when God looks at His creation and He declares, It is good. Now, we are in a world today of hyperbole where the word good is, eh, that's just good. We think of phenomenal and outstanding, and we use all of these words. But I want you to know that the original Hebrew word for good comes from a word that would be spelled T-O-B or tob. It means joy unspeakable or pure delight. In other words, God delights in what he does, and he wants nothing less than for you and I to delight in what we do. The desires of our heart. He wants us to enjoy His presence. He wants us to enjoy His, His Word. He wants us to enjoy our worship. And things may start out in that as spiritual disciplines, but they quickly become the joy of the Lord in our life as we pursue them. In the, Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus revealed a supernatural sequence that we are to take note of when He tells us this in Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things then will be given to you as well. 
I'm afraid today in our culture we read this backwards and we want everything that the world has to offer and then we will seek God. But that's not the way it works. You cannot seek God second or third or tenth and expect Him to give you the desires of your heart. Seeking Him first is a delight to the Lord that He then will bless your heart with. Seeking Him first gives Him the first word and the last word in your life. Seeking Him first is making sure that His voice, even the still small whisper, is the loudest voice in your life. The Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 3.8 states, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. It's only then that God will begin to speak to you through the language of desires and He will intensify your desires and He will upload new desires and those desires will become spiritual compasses that will then become plans and ministries and opportunities as you listen to the voice of the Spirit through your desires. I can tell you this, When God speaks to you through the desires of your heart, He will always take you out of your comfort zone. You know that, don't you? You see, because God will plant within you desires that He knows you can't do. And it brings a reliance on God in brand new directions that delight His heart because you have to submit your will to Him. You have to surrender what you have to Him. And so the desires in order for them to come to pass require that you simply stand before him and say, okay, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I've got a desire. And so you're going to need to make this come and work. Listen to me closely. Some of us have no idea what we want because we have tied our desires to the altar of other people's expectations. And then we wonder why we don't feel the joy of the Lord. It's because you've been listening to the wrong voices. And that when you're in the presence of the Lord and you're asking God, Lord, I want to hear your voice. When he speaks to you, it will be a voice of gladness. It will bring joy to your heart. It will produce in you joy and gladness. Worship team, I'm going to ask if you'd please come. One of the most thought-provoking questions in Scripture is found in a conversation that's recorded in Mark 10, 51. It's between Jesus and a blind man. And Jesus asks him this question, what do you want me to do for you? And in one sense, we look at that question and we're going, that seems like an unnecessary question because Jesus is talking to a blind man who obviously wants his sight And so we ask ourselves, why does Jesus ask that question? And I think that the answer to us today is simple, because Jesus wants to know what you want. He wants you to be able to articulate to him, what is it that you want? Because I believe today that if Jesus were to walk into our church or if Jesus were to walk into the home of those that are watching online right now and join you with coffee, and he would ask you the question, what is it? that you want, I'm convinced that 90% of the people in churches today would not be able to give him an answer. Because we are out of touch with the language of desire that the Spirit speaks to us. The Scripture says this, take delight in the Lord and He will give you your heart's desires. I close with this story. 
Gordon McKenzie served as the creative director for Hallmark Cards, and he would often go as a guest speaker to elementary schools, and he would hold creativity seminars, and he said, I would go into first grade classes, and I would simply say, how many artists are there in this room? And he says, and every first grader would raise their hand and wave them back and forth. I'd then go to the second grade class, and I asked them the same question, and he said, half of the second graders would raise their hand. I'd then go to the third graders and discover that only a third of the third graders would raise their hand. And by the time I got to the sixth grade class, only one or two would tentatively begin to raise their hands. According to McKinsey, every school that he visited participated in what he calls the suppression of creativity by training kids away from their natural inborn ability to find the curiosity that God has placed within them. To kill their creativity and to raise up a generation that does not know how to listen to the desire language of the Holy Spirit because they've been told their whole life, I just want you to be normal. And so we normalize people and we as parents how many of us have said I just want my kids to be normal I'm no longer praying that for my grandkids I want them to hear the voice of desire through the Holy Spirit can I tell you that salvation today is more than just forgiveness of sin Jesus wants to set us free from the conforming nature of just trying to be normal so that we can open up the heart to hear the desire language of the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls us a peculiar people. Don't know about you, that doesn't sound real normal to me. Some of you are on the, you know, on the fence of normal anyway. But If uniqueness and the ability to hear the Spirit's voices of desires is something that's brought about by the Holy Spirit, then Lord, speak, for your servant is listening.